The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. We've been exploring over the last weeks the teachings on mindfulness from the Buddha, and the teachings in the Satipatthana Sutta. And last week we started exploring the um, exercise in the fourth foundation or the instructions in the fourth foundation around exploring experience through the perspective or the framework, or we could say the lens of the Four Noble Truths. This exercise in the fourth foundation says that we should observe our experience looking at or understanding in the present moment these these four areas or aspects of experience. So the, the framing of, of the text says something like, well, I'll, I'll actually, look, I'll read it. <laughs> I'll say it says something like, I'll read it. So the, um, the translation that I'm reading is from Bhikkhu Bodhi, and he, for the fourth foundation, uses this word mind objects, which is an odd kind of language a little bit, you know, what are mind objects, but, but the, the word it's translating is Dhamma, which often simply means experience or phenomena. It has other meanings as well, but in this context, it, it, it appears to simply mean no experience. Be, be with phenomena is in the present moment. And so how does one abide contemplating phenomena in terms of the Four Noble Truths? How does one abide contemplating phenomena as phenomena in terms of the Four Noble Truths? One understands, as it actually is, this is suffering. One understands, as it actually is, this is the origin or the arising of suffering. One understands, as it actually is, this is the cessation of suffering. One understands, as it actually is, this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So as we explored last week, the, the language here, it, it's, it's language of understanding. It's language of understanding in our direct experience what is suffering. What is that experience of suffering? And this, the, this language also, because it says understands as it actually is, this is uh, really an insight. Now we can recognize experience as suffering and have it not be terribly insightful. It might just be, you know, wow, I'm really angry and I've got to, you know, figure out how to get rid of this problem as opposed to with this this teaching, and, and it's not to say that it's not useful to explore and understand or like how to work with the external world in our lives. And, and yet this teaching is pointing to understanding the experience. This experience here right now, this is suffering. This is painful. This is stressful. And so that's, that's the orientation to, uh, to understanding. So when, for instance, something like anger is arising, we might understand this is, this is anger and it's a problem, or we might understand this is the experience of anger. 
So different is kind of different um, uh, ways of being aware of the same phenomena, the same experience. That understanding of of um, this is what it's like to have the experience of anger doesn't preclude acting and and uh, like changing the environment to say you know alter some situations alter the uh, the environment but it's rather than acting out of the reactivity of anger there's the container in which there's the understanding of what anger is how it functions how it ripples out how it tends to perpetuate anger and there may be different responses that would that would arise through that understanding and so the the there sometimes is a misunderstanding in what mindfulness is i mean mindfulness is simply mindfulness is a, is simply this recognition of kind of the reflective of this is what's happening in the present moment as an experience in the present moment but people often take that teaching to mean and you don't do anything with it and you don't respond and so the the uh what what I found, at least in my own practice, is that when I'm more available to really know what is here in the present moment, there's more wisdom available to respond in a skillful way. And so this uh, this pointing to the direct understanding can uh, of what suffering is can um, open us to some wisdom that may be here in our system in our in our hearts and minds to in terms of a way to respond that may be very different than if we were just responding right out of the reactivity of that suffering so so the the understanding or the direct understanding this is suffering a valuable understanding not only for ourselves but also for the world because it can affect or influence how we respond to that suffering, how what steps we take, what actions follow. So understanding it as it actually is, this is suffering. Um, this is the arising of suffering and the, the next the next understanding. The, um, the first the first insight or understanding is really just kind of noticing or knowing, the direct experience of suffering in the present moment. It may not come with a lot of like detailed understanding of how it happened or what the causes were or what the triggers were, but there's just this like, wow, that hurts. This is what it feels like. So I'm going to go through these four insights with uh, respect to one understanding I had very early in my practice. And I, I did, um, I talk about this insight a lot because it was, it was such a seminal understanding in my, um, practice. It was like, I probably two months into my starting meditation practice. And, uh, this first understanding around, uh, this is suffering. Um, so the, what I was exploring was anger, um, there was a particular anger at a particular person over something that they did. And boy, I was really angry, you know, really, really angry. And it was kind of consuming my life, really uh, making me non-functional at times. I would find myself frozen sitting in front of the computer 
and not able to, to even think about anything other than the anger and what was happening there. And then I, I got a little bit of instruction around, well, notice, you know, can you notice this experience as experience in the present moment? And I was a complete newbie to this whole thing, complete, like I didn't understand quite how it would make any difference. In fact, wouldn't it make it worse to be aware that I was angry? And so, but I, but I, you know, I kind of hit bottom because I was so torqued out from this anger. So just like, okay, well, I'll give this a try. You know, nothing else has worked. So let me give this a try. And I started just seeing if I could notice. Yep, this is what it's like to be angry. And there over the, over a couple of months, just that exploration, just noticing this, this is what it's like to be angry. I began to notice that this was suffering. I had not really clearly, I mean, it was kind of, I remember being at one point where I was, what I was doing was like, oh my gosh, you know, I somehow thought this anger was helping me. It is very painful. That is kind of a little bit of that understanding or that insight. This is suffering. You know, the, the mind and its reactivity in the, in the reactivity to anger thought the anger was making me feel better by making somebody else feel worse. And, and then as I began to experience or feel into the experience of anger right here and now, that understanding of, oh, this hurts me. This is painful here. So that was, that was, that's that kind of flavor of the, this is suffering. Um, and, and there, there, you know, it's, it was, it's really just a very kind of almost direct and visceral kind of experience. These, these insights or understandings tend to be direct experiential understandings. So I spent a couple of months really getting familiar with that getting familiar with what is this experience of anger and how is it, you know, how is it felt as suffering? And just that, just that exploration was very powerful because I did notice over the course of a couple of months that the, um, uh, the anger started like, it's like the mindfulness broke in to the pattern of anger earlier and earlier in the cycle of anger. And so I was not as angry by the time I noticed that I was angry. And I began to notice it's not as painful to be not as angry. (laughs) You know, yeah, it's still painful, but it's, boy, was it painful when I was in that rage. And so, so there was some learning that happened there around that first noble truth. And one thing that I'm pointing to here, I'm going to just kind of step back and uh, and kind of make set set a little context for this because at the end of the last class last time somebody asked the question about why the order of these four noble truths. Now, wouldn't it make more sense the four noble truths? Um, this is suffering. This is the arising of suffering. This is the ceasing of suffering. This is the way leading to the ceasing of suffering. And the question was, don't we have to know the way first? Um, and and why is that insight last? Or why is that that one stated as the fourth noble truth? And I gave some responses to that, you know, some vari- variations on responses to that, uh, different different understandings for why it might be the the path leading to the ending of suffering doesn't start the whole uh, teaching of the four noble truths. Um, 
but then as I was reflecting on this after the class, I, I've, I was remembering this experience that I'd had. And it struck me as I remembered through this whole experience of the insights that, that happened around the anger, that they happened in the order of the Four Noble Truths as they're stated. So like, for instance, at the beginning, I kind of, I had some, I had some learning understanding about the way, right? I had somebody tell me it's helpful to be mindful of anger as anger. That was, that was the way that I, you know, so there was some of that. There was a wisdom. Somebody had sent me a book and it's like, okay, well, I can try this, but I didn't have insight into that. It was just kind of taking it on faith. And that's not a small thing to take it on faith. I was willing to engage, but I didn't have the direct understanding that it was helpful, that it would be helpful. As I began practicing, I began seeing the value of the what I was doing because I was noticing I was less angry over time. You know, the anger was was reducing, but I still didn't have the direct like Oh, this is, this is what, you know, this is the path. I didn't, I didn't have that until much later. So, um, so this first understanding around this is suffering. This really came first. This was the first thing when I started, took that instruction. Be aware of your anger. That was the first thing that happened. I noticed, wow, that's painful. This is suffering. And then I began seeing the value of that, of that recognition. And that recognition is pretty simple kind of, of insight. You know, it's not a very complex mental, like seeing a lot of detail. It's kind of like, ah, oh, that hurts. You know, so, so sometimes these insights are very simple. Just that hurts. This is, this is, this is suffering right here and now. So that insight into suffering can be a pretty simple insight. Sometimes I think with, with insights, we think about, or we think that our understandings, in order to have understandings, uh, in order for insights to be, quote, real, they have to be really complicated, or they have to be, you know, seeing a lot of detail. And in my own experience, sometimes they're really simple. And I think around this insight of this is suffering, it can be really simple. So continuing the, um, the exploration around the anger in my, in my, in my, um, first couple of months of practice. And also, by the way, I was doing this in my daily life rather than in sitting primarily. Um, so the understanding of seeing this is how anger comes to be. That was, that was a couple months later. And that, that came more clearly in a way because this is the story I tell a lot. Um, I was um, just in my kitchen. I was cutting an apple with a knife. And, um, you know, I wasn't trying to be mindful so much. But I think by this point, because I'd spent a couple of months really attuning the mindfulness to the anger, you know, so like the mindfulness was really, it was almost like anger was a mindfulness bell. As soon as anger came up, it's like mindfulness was right there with it. And so that's a great thing, actually. It really helps the 
uh, ability and the capacity to respond more skillfully when the mindfulness comes up more quickly with, with that challenge. And so I was just in my kitchen, I was cutting an apple and not particularly trying to be mindful, not looking for anything in particular. But as I cut that apple, I noticed in that moment. So this was where the the as uh, the seeing the mindfulness revealed a lot more complexity and a lot more detail. So I, I noticed as I cut the apple, a memory arose in my mind about being with the person I was angry with at a fruit stand some, you know, years before. And so a memory arose about that person. And I saw how the mind kind of wanted to jump on that memory about that person and think more thoughts to kind of gear up the anger. So there was a kind of a, an in, impulsion in the direction of anger. I saw that before the anger happened. So, you know, I'm describing this. It takes a lot of words to describe this. This happened in a split second. So I saw the, I saw that I was cutting the apple. I saw the memory. I saw the impulse to anger. And the next thing I saw was not something, again, none of this was something I did. But the next thing I saw was the mind recognize heading towards anger. That's going to hurt. I don't think so. And so the, the mind right in that moment saw both, you know, how the the suffering was coming into being. So the kind of the impulse of the direction, the arising of suffering, the origin of suffering. It saw the trigger being the, the apple, the memory, uh, the thought of the person and the intention to think more thoughts and get angry at the person. So the intention to anger was there, but the anger wasn't yet there. But there was a direct, there's a really clear understanding in that moment that intention to anger is going to lead to anger. So that's kind of seeing the arising, the conditions that lead to the arising of suffering. That's that second understanding that's pointed to. Also in that moment, the um, mind understanding that's going to lead to suffering Something in the system, like this was where the wisdom that had been developing over the previous months of seeing anger and understanding right inside the being, this is going to hurt, this is suffering, the mind let go of that intention to that direction to anger. So essentially what happened in that next moment was I was kind of waiting to get angry or kind of I, I saw I saw that the mind didn't have to. That I, that the, what the mind said is, I don't have to jump on that train. And, uh, and I didn't. The mind did not jump on that train, but I kind of didn't believe that that was possible. I kind of thought that I had no choice, that I had to get on that train and it was going to happen whether I wanted to or not. But it didn't happen. And I attribute that to the wisdom of the practice because it wasn't a choice I could have made. And so right in that moment, also seeing... Wouldn't, I wouldn't call it the cessation of anger, but I would call it the non-arising of anger there. So that, you know, there was the cessation of the intention to anger, which, which followed then by not anger not arising. And so that's in the terrain of that third understanding, the ending of anger. In that moment, the mind saw and understood anger's not happening. 
So right there in that split second, seeing the, the second understanding of how anger comes to be and that it doesn't have to follow if the intention is released. That's kind of, that's, that's seeing that, those two insights. So again, the first, the first understanding was this is suffering. There was a lot of time I spent in that terrain. And then, and then the, this moment of understanding of seeing the thought arise from the apple, the thought, the memory, the intention, seeing all of that. Now that's a more complicated kind of insight, right? I mean, it's, it's seeing a lot of detail. And it was very powerful to see that. It was very powerful to see how the intention would lean to anger and that the mind let it go. It was really powerful to see all of that. And so sometimes I think, you know, that kind of insight, I definitely, over the course of my early practice especially, preferenced that kind of insight. It's like, I thought that was where it was at. I had to see all the detail. But then I began to understand actually some of the more basic understandings of like, wow, this is suffering. Very powerful. You know, that just the simplicity of that insight. And also subsequently in more, more recent years, one of the things, one of the ways the, the insight around the ending of suffering has been happening is just feeling or seeing something let go. Feeling and feeling a, a suffering kind of just letting go like there's there's kind of the recognition of the suffering and the ending of it just in the same moment almost just feeling that and sometimes it it almost feels like it can release before i've even noticed the suffering it's like what something let go and i didn't even know what it was i hadn't known there was suffering there but there was this feeling of release this feeling of something letting go and there's not a lot of detail either around what let go or how it let go or what the conditions for the letting go were. It's just the release and the understanding there was suffering that was released. So sometimes that third noble truth can also be experienced as a really simple understanding. Just, wow, suffering's not happening right now. And and the, the kind of delight and joy that can come with that. So to continue the, the story around this uh, split, few split seconds in my practice, <laughs> early in my practice. So having seen the mind, having seen mindfulness watch all of this unfold and not go to anger. In the, the next, as I said, I was kind of waiting for anger to come. You know, it's like I was standing there, still had the knife in my hand. And it's like, oh, my gosh, anger is not going to come up. And I think I, my memory is that I sank to my knees in gratitude for understanding or seeing a way, a possible path towards not having to be ruled by my anger. So that next moment was like, wow, this is I understand now how this works. I understand. I, I, it's like I saw that it's not something I do. 
right in that moment. It's like, I saw something. It's not something I do, but it's coming out of the conditions of practicing mindfulness and being curious about the suffering, being curious about experience as present moment experience. This release from suffering came about because of that practice. And the appreciation and the knowing of that was like, oh, this is the way. This is the path. This is helpful. That's that fourth understanding, that fourth insight. This is the way leading to the ending of suffering. There was a direct understanding that it was the way. A direct insight that this works. I don't think we get that insight. I mean, like the, the, the early part of understanding something about the path and understanding something about the way was being told, you know, be mindful of in my case, anger when it's happening. And, you know, so there was some willingness to pick that up, but there was not an understanding. At the uh, at that moment of having seen what happened with the mindfulness being present and the letting go of the movement towards anger, there was a direct understanding of this is the way. And there was almost like an internal um, alignment with, yeah, this path, I'm going to, I'm going to be on this path. I'm going to walk this path because this is helpful. So, so that understanding into the path, it's, 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 it's like, it wasn't the very ending of my suffering around anger, but it was, it was kind of like I stepped onto fully stepped onto this is how anger can really weaken in my life. So really fully stepped onto the path in that moment. And that then spurred, you know, kind of like more interest in being aware of suffering when it arises. Being aware of what I could learn about how it arises and how it might come to the ending. So these four insights, and they're, they're, it's a kind of a very simple way to think about how we are mindful, orienting towards mindfulness of suffering, how it comes to be, how it might let go. And the commitment and the kind of understanding of, yes, this, this way is helpful. That is also described as an insight. And as I thought back over that, it's like, yeah, that was actually the moment I stepped on the path fully. That it wasn't just, well, I'm willing to see how this works. It's, yes, this does work. So it's kind of like another analogy Gil has used in the past. He says, you know, you might have a linoleum floor that's just completely stained and like, you know, it's like the linoleum gets really dirty easily. And, you know, you might go down and you scrub a little piece of it. And it's like, wow, this little piece of it, this little square inch. I can get that part clean. It's possible to get that clean. And so then you know theoretically that it's possible to get the whole thing clean. And so that, you know, that's kind of what happened in that moment. It's like that moment was not like the, the ending of suffering in my, in my life, but it was the understanding of the possibility, the possibility for suffering too. And, and so that really led to a, a real like engagement with the path. So um, 
the last, this Four Noble Truths, the teaching on the Four Noble Truths is the last uh, exercise in the Satipatthana Sutta, the last um, description of ways to engage with experience. And, you know, I, I think of that, they can be understood in many ways, these many exercises in the Satipatthana Sutta. Um, you know, I, I, I think of them often as each one is almost like a complete practice in itself. And so, for instance, the mindfulness of breathing, the first instruction in the Satipatthana Sutta, there's a, a, a whole sutta devoted to mindfulness of breathing that describes it as being a complete path in and of itself. And so we can, we can use that. If that's where it feels like it's most resonant to be mindful is with the breathing, that can be a complete path. And then some of us, are, like for me, like I came in through the doorway of suffering and noticing it in my daily life. And it really feels like that fourth, no, the Four Noble Truths understanding was, a, was kind of my orientation, especially early on in my practice. Since then, I picked up on some other instructions, you know, other teachings like around the five aggregates or the six sense spaces and being curious around those. But early on in my practice, the Four Noble Truths was really a foundational orientation for how I looked at experience. Is it suffering? Is this the way leading to the ending of suffering? So any particular orientation around being aware of experience in the moment as experience in the present moment. It could be the breath. It could be looking at suffering, a particular suffering for me, such as anger early in my practice. It might be orientation to feeling tone, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral aspect of experience. It might be the elemental nature of experience, the uh, the kind of the physicality of our experience. So many different ways in to being present with what's happening in the present moment. But the key really is the mindfulness, the being present with experience as experience in the present moment. Kind of like I described that distinction with anger about knowing that there's anger and, you know, kind of following the anger versus knowing, oh, this is what anger is like in the present moment. That orientation of experience is what right mindfulness, a kind of a simple way to describe what right mindfulness is. And there's many ways in to exploring experience. Whatever's happening in your present moment experience, there's a way to be with it, with that kind of wise mindfulness. The uh, conclusion in the Satipatthana Sutta, the kind of move in the direction this uh, whole discussion around wise mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta has been in the context of exploring the Eightfold Path. And the ending of the Satipatthana Sutta points to kind of almost a little promise the, the, the Buddha gives. He says, if you cultivate this wise mindfulness, if you cultivate this, this kind of mindfulness for seven years, you will find freedom. And then he says, you can cultivate it for six years or five years or four years. You'll still find freedom. You can cultivate it for seven months. You'll find freedom. Now, as you begin, as this, as this unfolds, you begin to get the understanding he's talking about continuously, not just like, oh yeah, I'm going to practice mindfulness for a few minutes today and a few minutes tomorrow. And that's two days in a row of practicing mindfulness. That's not what he's talking about here. 
He's talking about continuity of mindfulness. But what he comes down to, you know, what he comes back to is uh, the promise that if we cultivate mindfulness for seven days continuously, freedom will follow. Now, he doesn't then go down to seven hours, you know, so it's like there is a there's a that that's a lot of mindfulness. Seven full days of mindfulness. I haven't gotten there. (laughs) <laughs> the mind has gone off, you know, but, but, but there's so much learning that can happen. We don't have to, we don't have to give up or feel like, um, well, just because I, you know, have had all these gaps in my mindfulness, it's hopeless. I mean, my own practice has really shown, I mean, just that, just that example of that, that moment of seeing how the anger didn't arise, you know, that was not continuous mindfulness for two months. But boy, there was so much freedom in that moment and so much um, power of that understanding in my life going forward. So a lot of freedom is possible. The Buddha's pointing to full freedom here, you know, the full release of greed, aversion, confusion. Never again anger arising, never again greed arising, never again um, aversion arising. That's this promise that if seven days of mindfulness seven days of wise mindfulness of right mindfulness will lead to freedom. So the the piece to me that this kind of links in the eightfold path is the continuity of mindfulness there. The continuity um, is a, is, is concentration. Basically mindfulness moment after moment is what concentration is. We often think about concentration as being focused on one thing. And there is a form of concentration that is that in the Buddhist tradition. And there's a form of concentration that is just the simple continuity of mindfulness without distracted. Non-distracted awareness is a form of concentration. And it can be for a few moments. It can be for a longer stretch of time. And so when we come to that non-distracted mindfulness, that is right concentration. And so that will be the topic. We'll start into right concentration next time. Um, and we'll, we'll enter into that by stepping back again. I think in this, in this kind of conversation around the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the, you know, all the factors of the Eightfold Path, I've kind of been go diving in deep and then stepping back for the context and diving in deep and stepping back for the context. Next week's going to be a stepping back for context week, um, where explore kind of how concentration or so like how concentration is supported by all of the factors of the Eightfold Path. There's a particular teaching in the suttas that I want to refer to that um, speaks about how all the path factors, all of the factors of the Eightfold Path, wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, how they weave together and support each other and create the conditions for wise concentration, which leads to that, that concentrated Mindfulness, that undistracted mindfulness, as the Buddha promised at the end of the um, Satipatthana Sutta, that is leading in the direction of releasing greed, aversion, and delusion. So um, comments, questions, reflections on, on what I've shared.
or thoughts you've had from previous sessions? Nicholas. With recognizing dukkha, there's been a journey for me of like not fixating on it or being fascinated by it or like really getting tense around it. And for me, it's just been the that slow process of seeing it come and go and seeing it come and go and recognizing that like this one's not the one that's going to ruin my life. Like it's here, I got stuck. Oh, okay, and it goes. But the the edge for me now is recognizing this is not dukkha not quite recognizing the arising and passing of it but just saying oh like you know maybe there's some dukkha here but also there's all of this stuff around it that's not dukkha and like kind of giving myself permission to rest in that is actually quite challenging a lot of the time and it's a great practice to to begin to recognize when we're not suffering because it's a kind of subtle thing sometimes actually like you know sometimes a great place to notice that is when it feels like nothing's happening like sitting at a stop sign or sitting at a stoplight, you know, maybe, maybe what your mind is doing is projecting into, you know, where you need to get to or things you need to do. And you're frustrated by the red light. But sometimes I've seen, oh, I'm just sitting at a red light. There's nothing to do. I can't go anywhere. You know, it's like, it's not a problem. I've got plenty of time to get there. It's like, oh, there's not suffering happening right now. <laughs> uh, so, so sometimes an orientation to that, like the orientation to looking at it through the lens of, is dukkha there, noticing when dukkha is not there. I mean, it doesn't even have to be within the context of like there's dukkha and there's other things that aren't dukkha, but just sometimes when it feels really neutral, not much is happening. When it feels really neutral, that can be a good time to check in. It can be harder to notice and be mindful in those times. We don't tend to notice when there's not much happening. But if you can kind of begin to attune to that, attune to, oh, it's kind of neutral. You know, and that through the, the foundation of Vedana, we can begin to, you know, be curious about, oh, it's kind of neutral. So is there suffering here? Sometimes there can be suffering around neutral, boredom or something, but sometimes it's just simple. It's like, oh, yeah. And so that, that kind of context of seeing what is it like not to suffer? Sometimes it's, it's really subtle. Yeah. So, so, but it's a great exploration. I want to encourage the exploration. Thanks. Charles Lee. Hi, yes, thanks. Um, so yeah, Nicholas's share brings up for me, um, I guess, kind of that, that there's a difference between dukkha and, and suffering. Um, I guess it's like the incomplete, you know, or, or just there isn't really an English or American word uh, that directly translates uh, dukkha, because uh, I've struggled, or I just find it an interesting um, point where I guess being introduced to to Buddhism, kind of thinking that everything is, give me one second, um, everything is uh, kind of all of life has uh, some amount of suffering, like every conditioned thing. I guess has dukkha. Uh, it's one of the, you know, it's one of the marks, but, um, but then also with the idea that, you know, not everything that's, you know, not everything that's happening is bad. I guess not all dukkha is bad or kind of suffering in the sense that I think of, you know, 
suffering at you know being tortured or having something unpleasant happen right. happen because you know even when pleasant things happen you know they're temporary they're not lasting they're you know ultimately you know will ultimately disappear so um uh, and so i've asked you know i've you know i, I i've asked monastics or i asked one monastic um you know is, is does buddhism teach that you know there's you know everything is suffering and she actually said yes and and thought that and that's what brought her to practice um and then you know i've heard lots of other teachers say well no you know that's taking it overboard you know buddhism doesn't say that you know everything in life is suffering it just says that in life there is some suffering I would say, and I, I spoke to this last time, I think, the, the Tuesday class, last time I spoke to the different definitions of dukkha. And um, I would say that the Buddhist teaching does say, I mean, in terms of the word dukkha, using the word dukkha as um, unreliability, uh, and that's a translation for what dukkha means. It's like, yes, because things are impermanent, they are unreliable. There's nothing in our world that is reliable. And the experience of what we call suffering comes often around that unreliability. You know, it's like we want it to be reliable. And it's the, the, it's the, um, the resistance to that truth of unreliability that creates what we call suffering. And so, you know, the, the, the statement, all conditioned phenomena are dukkha, that's in the suttas. You know, all conditioned phenomena are dukkha, that's everything. Mindfulness is dukkha. Joy is dukkha. But not in the terms of suffering, in the terms of this unreliability. I can't hold on to my mindfulness. I mean, we see that in a moment. You know, we, 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 the, the, mind, the mind wanders and comes back. You know, mindfulness is not reliable. I can't control my mindfulness. You know, so, so that too is dukkha. It's unreliable as a place to say, yep, I can hold on to that and that's going to do it for me. Um, Joy, happiness, you know, equanimity, even all conditioned phenomena. And from that perspective, that understanding, and I think, I think it is the problem of using the word suffering, you know, that, and so, so, you know, when we use the word unreliable, I think we can begin to understand how everything is unreliable and, and, and then look at what's my relationship to unreliable. You know, that's a truth that that's a truth of, of experience. Things are unreliable. So what's my relationship to that? And when we come into alignment with that truth, there's a lot more ease in the mind. And that's where, you know, the the uh, that the suffering that we call suffering feels like it releases when we come into alignment with that truth. So, I mean, that's a great, a great point. And and. Um, I think sometimes the, the reflection or the looking at experience, so looking at that first understanding, this is dukkha. That also could be understand as, I mean, in my case, in that first ex, ex, uh, example I gave around seeing the anger, that, that was the suffering of, yeah, I'm suffering. <laughs> you know, that was that kind of suffering. But, but there also is the understanding of that, oh, this is unreliable. You know, that, that whatever's happening. And, and I had that happen at one point several years into practice. I found joy arising, so much joy in the practice. And, the, and there was like almost this little leaning towards and wanting to hold on to it. It's like, Oh, this is it. This is it. And then the wisdom came up and said, Nope, that too is unreliable. 
no, can't hold on to that either. And so, so that, that's also that understanding of that first noble truth of like, oh, right, that's unreliable. So, so that's, that's a way into, to understanding that, um, that insight also is the unreliable nature. So I think earlier in our practice, we're really looking at or looking at a lot of the suffering side of it. But then as we gain some skill in the, in the practice and a lot of the ordinary kinds of struggles of our lives really smooth out, then we start to understand the unreliability piece a little bit more.